So, faith and daily life. This topic is way too big. So I did my best to try to narrow it down to something that we could manage in hopefully 45 minutes. So I narrowed it down to kind of three things for us to think about. The first is kind of trying to maybe rethink how we understand the way that God is part of our life. The second is maybe needing to rethink a little bit what our relationship to God is. And then the third is kind of trying to be a little bit more practical in a concrete way in the way that we go about our life of faith as Catholic Christians. So that's the goal for this evening, reflecting on our faith in our day-to-day -day life. So to start off, a passage from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, never flag in zeal, be aglow with the Spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I think we can all agree, St. Paul gives a really good list of what we strive to live as Christians. But what's important is that beginning part of what it is we are to do in able to become that in the world. And so he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hold on to that idea as we walk through tonight. Offering our bodies, our whole lives, as spiritual worship to God. So, topic number one. I call it integration. Sometimes we have the temptation in living our life of faith of seeing the things that we do for our life of faith as like a pit stop for a race car driver, right? So a race car driver needs to make one or two pit stops during a race because otherwise they can't finish the race. They need to be refueled, they need new tires in order to last the whole race, right? If they just tried and did the, do the whole race without taking a pit stop, they would lose fuel, their tires wouldn't grip as well, and they wouldn't be able to finish the race or succeed in the race. They need the pit stop. But that's not the only time that the drivers have contact with their pit crew. The drivers are in continual communication with their pit crew over their radio. That they're constantly communicating about how fast they're going, when do they need to push, when do they need to hold back, is this a good time to pass, how are the tires doing, is there anything going wrong, does anything need to be corrected? If they crash, the pit crew will come and get them, 
and they'll bring them back so that they can reset for the next race. But it's a continual interaction. It's not just the pit stop that makes the race happen. But sometimes we approach our life of faith as just having a pit stop, right? Because we know that if I just try to go at it by myself, in time I will wear out. I will lose the grace that I need to persevere in this life as a Christian. Now, you can go for a while on spiritual reserves that you banked from your time growing up in a life of faith or from the times that you did frequent the sacraments. There's kind of like a bank of spiritual reserves that you can go on for a while, but as life keeps coming your way, it will wear you down. And God will feel further and further away if you don't make your pit stops. But God doesn't just want to be a pit stop to make sure that you can keep going. He wants to be part of the whole race. God's life is intended to be integrated into everything that we live, our bodies as a spiritual, our spiritual worship. And so we need to fight against the temptation of, you know, I've got Mass on Sunday, and then I try to get through the whole week to get back to Mass on Sunday, if that's what we're doing. Or I have my prayer that I say in the morning, and then hopefully I don't do anything that's not Christian at work through the day or with my neighbor. And then if I do, then at my night prayer, then I ask for forgiveness from God, and then I reset for the next day. Right? God is intended to be a part from the moment that we wake up till the moment that we go to bed in a conscious way, and to also remember that he is with us in an unconscious way when we are asleep. God is intended to be our life. Because what we can be tempted to do is to strive to create the life that we're looking for, and God becomes a piece of that life that we're creating. And so we try to slot God in where it makes the most sense for our life, right? God, his teachings, his grace provide me with what I need to grow as a human person. It provides me with the hope that I need to persevere through difficulty. And so I will make sure that God, that God peace is there when that's needed, right? It's kind of like we are making a puzzle and we're taking God, the puzzle piece, and inserting it into what we're trying to create. But if that's the way that we approach God and our life of faith, sometimes consciously, sometimes not consciously, the question becomes, then when God is asking something from me that doesn't fit in what I think is best, what do I do with it? I reject it. And so inevitably what will happen is we will reject a part of God in our life because, frankly, God's ideas for us are bigger than what we have for ourselves. So there will always be something in the Christian life that's going to come at us that's not going to seem to fit, and we need to learn how to wrestle with that. Right, I'll give you kind of a more extreme example that probably doesn't apply to anybody here, but a year ago, there was a couple that was approaching me to get married at one of the churches that I was looking after, and they wanted to get married there. She wanted to get married there. He wasn't Catholic because she grew up going to that church with her mom and her grandma, and so she had an attachment to that church, and that was basically the extent of her attachment to the Catholic church. But it was significant and meaningful enough for her that she wanted to be married there. But it was scary. And she had in her head that she could have her cake and eat it too because there's the grotto in Scarrow. So she figured she was going to get an outdoor Catholic wedding. But we're not allowed to do weddings at the grotto. And then I told her also that these three songs, country artists that you picked for music at your wedding, don't fit in a Catholic liturgy either. God is offering you a gift in the sacrament of marriage. And what we're trying to do is allow that to shape your day. And so 
We want to be within the church because this is the sacred space. And we want to sing sacred music at your wedding so that your soul is lifted to God rather than the songs speaking about what you think you already have in the love that you found. That was enough for her to go get married civilly instead because it didn't fit with her idea, her understanding of what she needed to create in her life, particularly at this time of marriage, it didn't fit. And so she couldn't accept it because God was a piece in the puzzle that she was creating of her life, right? See that with sacramental prep in general, right? There's requests being made because the sacraments are a gift from God through the hands of the church to those who receive it. And so the church, through her wisdom of centuries, has said, this is what is required to receive whatever sacrament. And frankly, we've set the bar really low to try to get as many people to receive those graces from God as possible. But many don't want to do that, right? There are many who see what the requirement might be and go, I don't really agree with that, right? A big one for those who frequent Mass regularly that is a struggle is the Church says, in order to receive Holy Communion, which you should receive at least once a year, in order to receive Holy Communion, you need to go to confession once a year. based on the volume of people that come to confession, I know that there are a good percentage of the parish that don't come once a year. Because if everybody in the parish came once a year, I would spend way more time in the confessional and I wouldn't have enough time in the times that we've already set aside for confession in the parish, right? These are the ways that God's life to us makes requests. And if God is just a piece, then we accept or reject the peace along the way based on what it fits in our way of thinking. Because when it comes to God, it's not first about my life, and it's not even about God's life in a way that it's almost like in opposition to us, that God makes demands of us, and it's like, oh, God, if you make me, I'll do it, fine. Kind of like the elder son that we heard on Sunday in the gospel, right? It's not my life or God's life in opposition trying to fight each other. God is life. God is being and existence itself. The fact that you are here right now existing is because you are in relationship to God who is being itself. If you stopped being in relationship with God, you would stop to exist in an instant. God is life. And so when we're living the Christian life, it's not a relationship with God that we're trying to wrestle with Him. Right? When we talk about this idea of being an instrument of God in the world, it means that we are in harmony with that life of God. Right, you hear talk about all the time that we're called to holiness as Christians, right? And too often, I think, we just have this idea of holiness as this idea of perfection that I'm striving to achieve. And so I need God's grace to take steps forward, to grow and become more and more perfect all the time to this ideal of what perfection is. Kind of. But the word holiness is tied to the same root word as to be healthy. To be holy is to be healthy, mind, body, and soul together. To be holy is to live in the way that God created you to exist. That sin is simply a stepping away, a stepping out of the existence that God desires for you. That's why we don't want to sin, because it makes us sick. 
We want to be holy because it makes us healthy. But just like our physical health, some decisions to be physically healthy aren't necessarily easy. They don't necessarily come naturally. They sometimes take work. And sometimes we have to overcome certain defects within ourselves to be healthy. Right? Because God isn't in opposition to us. God is a part of who we are. When we talk about grace and needing grace in our life, grace isn't some special thing that comes from heaven and drops down on us when we need it. Grace is an extension of God's life given to us, and we are capable of receiving it because we are baptized. Through baptism, we become capable of receiving that grace and letting it flow through our lives. This is part of what makes us as baptized Christians different than others. It doesn't mean that God's grace is not present everywhere and anywhere, but the ability to receive grace within ourselves and to let it flow through us is a gift of the Christian. It's the gift of a son or daughter of God. It's not an add-on. And I think one of the big things that we struggle with because of how we go about life now is most of the way that a lot of people, and we are not immune to this, live life is my life starts with me. And yes, I want to make decisions so that people that I care about are part of that life, but ultimately comes back to me. But for a Christian, it never starts with me because God is life. And I exist because God has given life. I'll give you kind of a silly example. I never used to care about the argument for daylight savings time, whether it should be or shouldn't be. Some people are like really passionate about it, like it's a big deal. And I was all like, just pick one, it doesn't matter, and let's just move on with life because it's just changing the clock or not changing the clock. I'll just do what my alarm tells me to do. But then I heard this year, a Catholic man talking about it, who was passionate about it, but I liked his argument. He said, daylight savings time as we do it is trying to manipulate time according to how we want to live. But if you take that away, then we become forced to live in the time that we are given. Right? We shift the time so that the daylight suits our needs. If we don't shift the time, then our life has to conform to the daylight that we're given. It's a very different way of approaching life in the world. It's the same thing with living in a city versus rural life, right? We build cities in a way that gives us the comforts and the efficiency that suits our way of life. Right? We build roads and neighborhoods in a particular way that will provide us with what makes life easiest. Right? But then we isolate ourselves from the reality of creation that's around us. But this is just since I've become a pastor. You know, I'm, I hate saying it, but I am a city kid. As much as I don't want to be a city kid, I am a city kid. But getting to know farmers as a pastor has made me come to a much deeper appreciation for that life. Farmers express an element of faith that those who live in the city don't have to have. Right? Farmers are dependent on the land that they're given, right? the land that they inherit. Some farmers have better land than others and they're dependent on whatever the weather is that they're given. They can't tell God to make it rain more, though sometimes I think they try. But they have to work with that. And they have to learn how to accept and give thanks in a good year, and they have to learn how to accept a bad year and what comes with that. 
Now, with modern farming, they've done a lot to eliminate many of those pieces, but still, they're dependent on the weather and the ground. They have to conform their life, their whole way of life, according to creation around them. Whereas in city life, what we're trying to do is we're trying to conform creation to the way of life that we want for ourselves. It's a different approach and understanding of what our starting point is for the way that we live our life. And for us as Christians, it always starts with God because He is our life. We're made this way. This is the way we've been created. And a simple example is our fascination with fire and water and babies. Right? Everybody can stare at those things for hours. And we're just captivated by it. Because there is something within those elements, within that life, that draws us into the infinite. And we're captivated by it. And we're drawn into it. This is the idea of the whole idea of the Christian life that we are allowing ourselves to be drawn into the infinite, out of our finite existence, into the infinite existence of God, by the life that he gives us and flows through us. Right? And we have this as Christians most beautifully through Jesus. God, who is the infinite one, became incarnate in time in Christ. And because God did that in Jesus, he desires to do it in us. That the infinite God desires to be finitely present within our life. And then through his infinite presence in our finite life, to draw our finite life into his infinite life. With the ancient phrases, God became man so that man could become like God. Right? There's, you may have heard this one before because it's quite often used, but if you haven't, it's a beautiful one. It's from St. Augustine. And it's talking about his conversion to God. So this is what he says. Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside. And it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you. Yet if they had not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called, you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. It's that idea that we can sometimes have the temptation to first searching for God in all of our prayers, in the good works that we do, and the reminders that God is within us. That we find God through contemplating just simply the mystery of our existence. When we're drawn into that mystery, we let go of the need to have all of the solutions of how to find God in this life. Because what we too often do is we make everything in our life a problem to be solved. But for a Christian, the starting point is a mystery to be contemplated. To be drawn into that mystery of the eternity of God. The vastness of his love. And so on and so forth. I'm going to read a short passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesians.
He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. For he has made known to us all wisdom and insight, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has given us what we need to know him and to love him and to serve him. And that comes through the gift of grace. And the first instance of grace in our life is the day of our baptism. And everything grows from there. And this is the reason why childlikeness in faith is so important. Because as a child, you're receptive to everything of life that is coming your way. Right? Your parents dictate your environment and what is going on around you and give guidance and move you through. When we become adults, then we like to be a little bit more determinant about our life and mold and shape things according to what we think is best. Child doesn't have that same opportunity because they turn to the one who gives them life first. Last idea. This idea of God being integrated into our life. To me, it's kind of like the difference between having a job and owning a company. Right? If I have a job, I go and I put my work in, and then I clock out, and I go home. And on the weekend, no, not all jobs are like this, but on the weekend, job is gone. If I own the company, and there's an emergency with one of the customers, I'm responsible. If our building that we are in starts flooding, it's the owner's problem, not the worker's. Maybe the owner then calls the workers to help after. But the owner's whole life can start to revolve around their business, right? They're thinking about it all the time. We're not supposed to think about work all the time. But if you own a business, you have to. Or another one is knowing about being married and actually living married life. Right? You can have ideas about what marriage is versus actually living the life of being married. Right? And when you live the life that you're, when you're married, you're not with your spouse 24-7, but just because you're not with your spouse doesn't mean that you're not married. Being with your spouse is not the indicator of whether you're married or not. You're still called to live as a married person when you're away from your spouse. And when you don't, that's when you get into trouble. It's the same thing in the Christian life. We're supposed to be here at Mass on Sunday. But when we're not at here at Mass on Sunday, and wherever we are from there, we still live from that truth of who we are as Christians in relationship with God, no matter where we go. And that relationship with God should inform the way that we go out into the world, right? So that it doesn't become a pit stop along the way, but informs and shapes everything of who I am and everything that I do, offering my body as my spiritual worship to God. Integration. But integration would be meaningless as a Christian without part two. Relationship. Because not only is our God one who becomes a part of our life, that he's not hovering over us, directing us, but he has adopted us as sons and daughters of his through Christ. 
And that is a very important thing in the Christian life. Right? Going back to what I just said about the importance of childlikeness and living out our faith. Knowing and living as sons and daughters of God is the heart of living that Christian life. Right? We all pray all the time, our Father. Well, do we understand ourselves as a son or daughter of the Father? Because our God is a personal God. He's not just someone who works ephemerally in the background, this kind of intangible reality of grace. No, our God is personified in Jesus. And through Jesus, we come to the Father as sons and daughters. And the church acknowledges this, right? Our first experience of God in life comes through our parents, for every one of us. And that is a blessing and a curse, because our parents are not God, right? Our experience of perfection, of the infinite, of knowledge greater than ourselves comes first through our parents. But then when we become old enough to start to see the flaws and the weaknesses of our parents, that inevitably starts to shape our understanding of God as well. And so our understanding, our view, our perspective of God inevitably becomes tarnished by the sinfulness and weakness of our parents. And so what we have to do is we have to allow God directly with us to move us past that first experience of Him through our parents into a true experience of Him directly. And that's the only way that our relationship with God can mature. Right? And so, depending on the personality and character of your parents, to keep that in mind in the way that you approach God. Right? For somebody who has a father who is very strict, think about how that would shape your understanding of God the Father. Right? God has demands of me. He wants me to do this and I need to do it well because if I don't do it well, there's consequences to my actions. Well, that's kind of true, but in a lot of ways not. Right? Who our parents are, were to us, shapes that relationship with God. And we have to allow Him to move us past that because otherwise we will be childish before God. And our relationship with Him will always be marked by that reality and will never mature in our Christian life. That's a different reality than the Old Testament. If you pay attention when you hear or read in the Old Testament and the prayers that come from the Old Testament, they address God in a different way. It's not a personal address to God. Right? They wouldn't say, Our Father. That's a change that comes in Christ. That what we say as Christians is when we're baptized, we are baptized priest, prophet, and king. And so whenever you go to God in prayer, whether you realize it or not, it's actually a priestly prayer. Right? Because in the Old Testament, what happened if they wanted to offer prayer to God? True sacrifice to God. They had to bring it to the priest in the temple and the priest would offer it on their behalf. Right? They didn't have the privilege of looking God face to face. But as Christians, you are baptized as priests, the baptismal priesthood, which gives you the freedom to go to God directly without the immediate intercession of the priest. Now, I'm not saying you don't need me. You still need me. That's a different thing. 
but to know that your ability to go to God in prayer directly, to make your requests to God directly, is by virtue of your baptism. Because only by uniting ourselves to the prayer of Jesus, who is the Son, can we rightfully offer that prayer to God. And so we have that privilege. Do we see it as a privilege to be able to do that? Having that personal experience of God is key to a Christian understanding of God. There are many Christians who live their Christian life without a Christian understanding of God. What do I mean by that? I mean that they are Christians, they are baptized, and they might be part of a Christian community, but their experience and their understanding of God is one that is very distant. God who is in heaven, God who created all things, God the Almighty Father. But God sent his son for a reason. Right? The, the evangelical thing of, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? There's a good thing in there. Jesus should be someone who is personal to you because he is the one who brings that infinite close to you. That's what gives a Christian character to our relationship with God. It's through Jesus so that we can know him in that way. There's, in the Song of Songs, right, this, this book in the Old Testament basically this love letter between two lovers that's put in Scripture as this understanding of the intimate love that God desires with His people. There's one verse in chapter 7 that says, I am my beloved's and His desire is for me. Can you see that for yourself in relationship to God? I am my beloved's. I belong to God who is my beloved. And God's desire is for me. And there's this little book that I really like. In his first chapter, that's what he bases it on. And he says, from his own experience, and I would, I would agree with his experience, these are the things that come to your life when this becomes true, when you know yourself to be a son of the Father or a daughter of the Father, or when you come to know that I am my beloved's and his desire is for me, here are the things that come to your life. The drum beats of doom in your head will be replaced by a song in your heart, which could lead to a twinkle in your eye. You will not be dependent on the company of others to ease your loneliness, for he is Emmanuel, God with us. The praise of others will not send your spirit soaring, nor will their criticism plunge you into the pit. Their rejection may make you sick, but it will not be a sickness unto death. In a significant interior development, you will move from I should pray to I must pray. You will live with an awareness that the Father not only loves you, but likes you. You will stop comparing yourself with others. In the same way, you will not trumpet your own importance, boast about your victories in the vineyard, or feel superior to anyone. You will read Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 to 18, and see God dancing for joy because of you. Zephaniah says, The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will, he will renew you in his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And finally, off and on throughout the day, you will just know that you are being seen by Jesus with a gaze of infinite tenderness.
This is the gift of our personal relationship with God. That he not only wants to be a part of everything that we do, but he wants to be a part of everything that we do in this personal way as sons and daughters of the Father. Okay. This is going to be longer than 45 minutes, apparently. It won't be longer than an hour. The third is trying to be practical about this. So there's about a million different ways that we could talk about this. So basically came to one way. Before that, what are the two primary excuses that a priest hears as to why this isn't possible? It's, I'm too busy, or it's too hard. And my question is, if you're too busy, you're too busy with what? What are you choosing to bring into your life that's making you too busy? But then at the same time, to keep in mind this quote from St. Teresa of Avila, who says, don't imagine that if you had a great deal of time, you would spend more of it in prayer. Get rid of that idea. It is no hindrance to prayer to spend your time well. And here's the question that I would throw back your way. If you're too busy to pray, then when you're on holidays, you must pray a whole ton. Busyness isn't the problem, right? And then it's too hard. Well, God is actually super simple. God is simple. You don't need to sit here and to listen to me talk for an hour about theology and the wisdom of the church. Our God is one who is so simple that he reveals himself to those who are ignorant. You don't need knowledge and learning to know God. Can it help? Sure. But it's not required, right? When the missionaries went to countries that had no education, apart from the education that they got and through their culture, they weren't less adept to the Christian faith than places in Europe that would have had formalized education. God is simple. I complicate things by all of my multiplicity of words and trying to make God intelligible. That makes it complex. We make God complicated because of our sin. God is simple. The Christian life is simple. It's hard, but it's simple. Again, St. Teresa of Avila. Much more is accomplished by a single word of the Our Father, said now and then from our heart, than by the whole prayer repeated many times in haste and without attention. Right? I think she says elsewhere, you could spend your whole life simply praying with Our Father. That's it. It's simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. But we need to be intentional. So what we need, whether we're ready to accept it or not, is we need what we call a rule of life. That comes from monastic life, right? So monks, nuns in monasteries have a rule of life that is particular to their religious order, right? So they pray at certain times, they work at certain times, they rest at certain times, they eat all at the same time. They have a rule of life for the house. And so most of the time we go, well, they're religious, so that's what they do. That's not realistic in the world. We don't have rules of lives. Well, you're right. If you tried to live like a monk in the world, that wouldn't work very well. But we still need a rule of life that works for whatever the life is that we are currently living. And that rule of life will change depending on which stage of life and what the circumstances of your life are. But we need that because what happens is, oh yeah, I pray, 
Yeah, when? Um, when I need to. Oh yeah, I go to church. When? Special occasions, weddings, funerals. Right? The church already gives all of us a basic rule of life. Come to Mass on Sunday. That's the start. Right? And then we build from there. And the church has had that in her tradition, but we've lost a lot of it in the last few decades. And some of you still do it in different ways. Right? So devotions in the life of the church are a way of establishing a rule of life. Right? The devotions that you have give structure and purpose to your prayer and your life of faith. Or sometimes there are bigger devotions that have not just a particular prayer, but particular practices associated with them, particular requests that go with them. It's also why religious orders created what we call third orders. It's like a third order Franciscan, which is meant for lay people who have a particular affinity to the life of that order of the Franciscans and allowing their life in the world to be shaped by the charism, by the life of St. Francis. And so they're supposed to take a retreat once a year, they're supposed to pray certain things throughout the day, and they're supposed to go about their life in a particular way. We've lost a lot of those, and so we've lost that rule of life that we're called to. So quickly, what we're going to do is the major rule of life that exists in the church comes from St. Benedict. So it's something like, I want to say, 80% of the rule of lives of religious orders in the whole world are based on the rule of St. Benedict. So the question for us is, how does the rule of St. Benedict apply to our life here that's obviously not in a monastery? So the first thing with St. Benedict, this shapes everything that they do. Ora et labora, which is prayer and work. It's the rhythm of their life. Work and prayer. Working through prayer and praying through work, and vice versa. So the question back to you is, how does this order your life? How do you find the balance and the priority of prayer and work in your life? Right? Whether you are retired, and you don't have any, many, as many responsibilities as you might have once had, whether you currently have a family with children, whether you are working a nine to five, whether you're working shift work, what makes sense in your life? And how do you find that balance and priority? Recognizing that what we're doing is we're trying to give priority to this, meaning not so much that this is the biggest thing in our life, but it's the first thing that we attempt to make room for in our life. And it's also about how do I prioritize people over things? or responsibility, right? Because we live in a fast-paced culture with a lot to do all the time, right? People from other parts of the world come and see us and they go, you guys are nuts with the amount that we work, right? So how are we prioritizing people over the things that we want to accomplish? Then when, when do I do these things? And with whom do I do these things? Right? The rule of life is not meant to, to be lived alone. Nothing in the Christian life is meant to be done alone. Yes, you have times of solitude. Yes, introverts want more time alone. But nothing in the Christian life is done alone. So who are we doing it with? Right? Again, going back to the beginning, allowing God to shape us to shape our lives. Many of you have the experience in your life of everything closed on Sunday. There was a reason for that. Now that everything is open, 
365 days a year, purely opinion, that's probably part of why we have more depression. Because there's no time for rest anymore. There's no designated time for rest. And so even if you're not working, you're thinking about having to work. And it took me eight years of post-secondary education to finally figure that out. And I'll tell every university student that I meet, you should not do any homework on Sunday. It took me eight years to figure out that I could actually get away with that. And the freedom of having a day where I was guilt-free in doing no schoolwork was liberating. It was a real day of rest. And then the other thing I was talking to kids at school, trying to give them an example, I said, when do you do your homework? The grade threes gave me the right answer, and so they ruined my whole analogy, but the grade fives gave me the wrong answer, which was the answer I was expecting, which is Sunday night. Right? And how many of our lives, Saturday is the day where we do everything that we want to do, and Sunday is the day where we do everything we have to do. Where on Sunday, that's when we're at home, we don't have as many things that we got to do out, we don't have to go around and do things, we're not getting together with people, and so we are at home, and so that's when we do our chores. That's when we get things done in the house. Or with families, that's when you set things up for the week. What would happen if the start of your week was a day of rest? That if Sunday, before the Monday started, the week, was full-on rest, instead of making sure everything was good to go for the week. What would that do in the shift for our minds and our hearts and the way that we were with people? Right? Even just thinking in your homes, how do you set up your homes to make this more probable? Do you have a place to pray in your house? A designated place for prayer? Because it's really hard to pray in the TV room. Right, and then just driving down the street, how many people, when you go home tonight, because it'll probably be dark enough, when you're driving down the street through your neighborhood, how many people's front windows are lit up by their TVs? Right? Most homes today, the centerpiece of the home is the television. Right? It's in the room that is most prominent in the house everywhere. Should it be? Right? If we want TV to be something that I go to do rather than something that shapes everything of my life, maybe it shouldn't be. The way that we set up our home makes this more or less probable. Prayer and work, finding that balance and all of those different pieces. Second, I already kind of alluded to it, rest, real rest. There's a guy named Joseph Pieper who's, who wrote a whole book on leisure as the source of culture. That leisure is the source of our culture and that we are losing the ability to have real leisure is destroying our culture. Here's what he says. Leisure is only possible when we are at one with ourselves. We tend to overwork as a means of self-escape, as a way of trying to justify our existence. The greatest menace to our capacity for contemplation is the incessant fabrication of empty stimuli which kill the receptivity of the soul. When we're always doing things, we start to lose the ability to receive things. God. So, one of the things I heard recently is, what well, we need to be able to do what we're called to do as Christians is we're called to rest with others. But too often what we do is we rest from others. I just need a break from you. Right? That we've worn ourselves out so much with everything that we do that we no longer have the ability to be with other people because we don't have anything left for them. Right? The example from who I was listening to is the difference between working all day 
and then wanting just some quiet space versus working with someone all day and then just crashing on the couch together. And maybe not saying a word, but just being with them. Rather than needing to be in another room from them. Being in a way of life and in a place where I want to rest with others instead of wanting to rest from others. Right? And that's going to be hard for those of you that have teenage children, for them to want to rest with you, but make them do it. How do we rest with each other? Right? Or those people that just can't rest. I have some in my family where when it's time for rest, even if the rest is watching the Euler game, well, now it's time to clean the dishes. Oh, and can I refill drinks? Oh, and can I get you dessert? And it's like, we'll get the dishes at the intermission. We'll refill drinks later. Just sit, because you're making me anxious by getting up all the time. And I can't rest because you won't rest. Right? Rest is something that we have to work for. For a lot of us, it doesn't come naturally. And rest is not the same as being lazy. Can watching a movie be rest? Yes. But is watching a movie synonymous with rest? No. Watching a movie can be escape. It can be avoiding what you need to do to actually find rest. If God rested on the seventh day, you need rest too. Third, eating. With whom do we eat and how do we eat? Right? Silly thing that my spiritual director has recently made me start doing and I'm trying to work towards it is living alone. What would I usually do? I'd grab my dinner and I go sit in front of the TV. And I eat while I watch a show. Now he's making me have a date with Jesus for dinner. And it sounds stupid and it kind of is stupid. But now I sit at the kitchen table and I've got the cross of San Damiano up on the wall. And some nights I'll even light some candles for my candlelight dinner with Jesus. And I debrief the day with Jesus like some of you might do with your spouse. Because then it's not something that I do alone. It's something that it's not escaping from everything that went on through the day and not dealing with what on, went on through the day, but actually facing, right? The dreaded question from mom and dad to the kids, what'd you do at school today? Nothing. But how important is asking that question anyway, even if you know the answer that you're gonna get? How hard you have to fight nowadays to have dinner with your families, right? Even grandparents, you have to fight for it because it doesn't happen. Even families having divided dinners all the time, right? Just go to Jesus's life and see how important meals were in his ministry, right? Is there a better place for us to learn how to be with each other than a meal? You're forced to sit down and stare the other person in the face and be there for 20 minutes to half an hour at least. You have to be with each other without distractions if you get rid of these stupid things because <laughs> now those are a distraction. But I've heard of parents that bring out a jar and everybody puts their phones in the jar before the family dinner starts and they go stick that jar in another room and only get it when it's decided that the dinner is done and we can go back to our other things. You have to fight for it. How do we eat together? Right? In monastic life, what they do, eating is not the time of recreation. Eating is time for contemplation. And so meals are done in silence and there's spiritual reading being read by one of the monks while everybody eats. Try it, even if there's just two of you at home. We do it sometimes as priests when we're on retreat. We just read for each other. And so you each take five, five minute shifts and you read for five minutes while the other person eats. It can be a great time of prayer 
in your meal, being intentional about how you eat. Might be way out of left field, but it comes from somewhere. Four. What we consume, what we take in. What do we consume and how do we consume it? Do we consume alone or do we consume together? Right, not that long ago, most houses, the computer had to be in a common area. Now, more and more people have devices for themselves, and so you consume it privately rather than together. I still can't understand having more than one TV because of the way that I was raised. There's one TV in the house. You figure out how to share it. There was more learning of how to be together and trying to decide on which show we're gonna watch after school than probably anything else that we did in the house. And learning how to like what somebody else liked because we didn't have a choice. So I had to watch Degrassi, The Next Generation with my sister because that's what she was gonna watch. But how important that is in the way that we are together, right? Open to other things, other people. And then we don't have to fill all the spaces in our life with things and stuff, right? For me, one of the things I'm looking forward to, hopefully soon, is forcing myself to have my morning coffee out on the deck with nothing, right? And my, my deck isn't great, I look at a back alley. But it'll be fresh air first thing in the morning. It'll be watching the sun slowly start to come up slowly starting to think about the day, right? Or the idea of just staring at a fire. Don't have to do things all the time. Learning how to consume less so that we're open to other things. Then, where do you talk about faith in your life? Where are you able to talk about your faith in your life? We all need it. If you have a poverty of people in your life to talk about faith, come and talk to me because we need to find a way to do that better as a parish. We need to have places to talk about Jesus with each other. It's not supposed to be something that I just kind of figure out and keep to myself, right? Those of you that are here with family and spouse, even if it's just forcing yourself to talk about how convoluted Father's homily was on Sunday, and I couldn't get anything out of it on your drive home, but to just spend some time talking about your faith. Right? Our faith is worked out when we talk about it. If it's only ever kept in our brains, it never goes anywhere. And last, service. What do you do outside your home? Is it always things for yourself? Right? I have this activity that I go to with these friends, and then I go have this outing. Like You can be super busy, and this is one of my beefs with a lot of young adults, especially when I was downtown, there was a lot of young adult Catholics, and they would always talk about how busy their lives were. And then they would tell me that everything that they're doing, and I'm like, you're not doing a single thing for anybody else but yourself. You're doing lots of good things. Right? You're singing in the church choir, and, but you love to sing. That's why you're there. And you have this activity, and you're going to this activity. What part of your life is actual service to others? Right? Getting out of ourselves. We need something concrete that's not just serving to create the life that I'm looking for, but is opening myself up to allowing my life to be created by others which opens me up to be created by God. And my generation is rapidly losing that, right? Those of you that do volunteer and you see that, there's just a plummeting of volunteers. It's becoming harder and harder to find volunteers to do anything. When baby boomers are no longer here, I'm scared to see what happens because right now baby boomers are the ones filling the majority of volunteer positions. How do we become of service? This was way too long. 
God wants to be a part of everything in our life because God is life. And the more that we open our minds and our hearts to that truth that he is our life, and he's not just trying to ask things of us, the more that we will become vessels of grace. And then we remember that as Christians, we are sons and daughters of God. And to simply spend time in prayer contemplating that. How crazy is that? What does that even mean to be a son or daughter of God? What does it mean that I get to call God Father? And then we have to be intentional about the way that we go about our faith. Because you know as well as I do probably better than I do because I spend too much time in here. It is getting harder and harder to be Christian in the world. And so if we don't fight for what we know we need to live that Christian life, we're going to have pit stops, but we're not going to be in constant communication with our pit crew, and we're going to wear out. So what are the intentional things that you need in your life of faith, steps that you need to take to make sure that you allow God and His grace to be a continual part of your life and that you never forget that you are a son or daughter of God. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.